Hello and welcome to Talking General Practice, the podcast from GP Online. I'm Emma Bauer, the editor of GP Online. Today on the podcast, I'm speaking to Dr. Sarah Taylor and Dr. Rebecca Leon, who are both GPs with a special interest in cancer, about early cancer diagnosis. Both Sarah and Rebecca have portfolio careers, and one of their roles is as GP leads at Gateway C, an organisation backed by the NHS in England and Wales and leading cancer charities, which is aiming to boost early cancer diagnosis. As part of this work, they host the GPs Talk Cancer podcast. In this conversation, we're talking about how the pandemic and the current backlog of care have impacted on cancer diagnosis and treatment, whether the NHS can hit ambitious targets on early cancer diagnosis, and what recent changes to national targets mean. We also talk about inequalities in early cancer diagnosis, new tests to detect cancer early, and the importance of screening. Rebecca and Sarah also have some practical advice based on their own experiences and conversations with experts that can help GPs ensure they don't miss a cancer diagnosis. Before we start, just to let you know that MIMS Learning Live is taking place in Liverpool on Wednesday the 29th of November. This free one-day event is organised by our colleagues on MIMS Learning. There'll be two clinical update streams providing CPD learning on topics including women's health, mental health, oncology, rheumatology and much more. You can register for your free place and find out more information, including the full programme, at mimslearninglive.com. I'm joined on the podcast now by Dr. Sarah Taylor and Dr. Rebecca Leon, who are both GPs with a special interest in cancer. Sarah is a GP in Manchester and the Cancer Research UK GP for Greater Manchester. And Rebecca is a GP in East Cheshire and GP lead educator at the Christie School of Oncology and specialist doctor at Francis House Children's Hospice in Manchester. Both Sarah and Rebecca are GP leads at Gateway C, which is backed by the NHS in England and Wales and leading cancer charities and is aiming to support early cancer diagnosis. And cancer diagnosis is what we're here to talk about today. So before we come on to talk about Gateway C and some other issues, I thought it'd be useful for people to both know a bit more about what it is and what you do. So Rebecca, you're a GP and also an educator at the Christie School of Oncology and a specialist doctor, as I mentioned, at a children's hospice. What do all of those roles involve and how do you combine them? Well, Emma, thank you very much for having us. As you mentioned, I have multiple jobs. I work as a GP partner in a busy practice in Macclesfield, which is East Cheshire Way. And the the Christie work that I work alongside Sarah with Gateway C and the School of Oncology is an educator role. And we'll go into more of what we do there. And Francis House Children's Hospice with the palliative care and oncology. And this is all something that I'm very passionate about. So I kind of have what's called a portfolio career. And I think that keeps me interested. It keeps me wanting to continue to work hard and actually keeps me interested in primary care. How was it that cancer became a clinical interest of yours? So back in the day, I wanted to be a surgeon and I actually went down the surgical route um, and I started my surgical exams and I joined a surgical rotation. And as one of my jobs, I was lucky enough to work at the Christie Hospital alongside two of the general surgeons, Professor Sarah Dwyer and Malcolm Wilson. And they, at that time, just really inspired me in oncology. And I loved not only the work, the diagnosing, clinics, treating, 
And it kind of just continued from there. And then I saw the bright side. I moved to general practice um, a few years later, and I've not really looked back. Uh, and I can actually incorporate my love of cancer uh, into my work as a as a working GP. I lead on the oncology side, and also my other interest is in palliative care as well. And Sarah, you're a cancer research GP alongside your GP role. What does that involve and how did you become involved with cancer research? So when my kids were little, I worked as a GP just doing three sessions a week. And as they got a bit older, one of my friends said, Sarah, there are advertising for a Macmillan GP in Manchester. Why don't you apply? You should do it. You've always had an interest in the cancer stuff. Why don't you do it? So I did. Um, And then as part of that was just a locality role within Manchester itself. And then Greater Manchester advertised for a early diagnosis cancer lead, which was funded by Cancer Research UK. So I applied for that and got the job um, and have just sort of developed the interest ever since. And the Gateway C role came as a development of the Cancer Research UK role. Um, So it's all sort of led on from different bits. But it was basically it was somebody saying to me, I think when my youngest was about 10, do you not want to start doing a bit more now? And I thought, okay, yes, probably could. Why did you become interested in cancer as your sort of special area of interest? It was one of my house jobs. So when I was a very junior doctor, my second job, um, half it was split between um, a gastroenterology job and a job on the oncology unit at what was then Dudley Road Hospital in Birmingham, which is now City Hospital. And I just found it really interesting. Um, so it stemmed from right in my second job a very, very long time ago. You both now also work for Gateway C. Can you explain what Gateway C is and how it's aiming to help GPs and improve cancer diagnosis? We started about seven or eight years ago as a pilot project where there's a NHS England initiative to develop new things in cancer. And we decided as part of the early diagnosis that we would look at a resource to support GPs in the early diagnosis of cancer. And Cathy, who, um, Cathy Heaven, who we both, Rebecca and I work with very closely on Gateway C, sort of came in at it with a, a big educational background saying, actually, if it was as simple as following guidelines, then everybody would be able to do it because all the guidelines are out there and particularly with online access. Now we have access to all the guidelines we want, but we wanted to do something that was a little bit different and that was based on the consultation that we all do. Um, So we provide education for early diagnosis of cancer in primary care. So we have simulated consultations where we script a conversation between a doctor and a patient. We try and bring out key bits of learning in that to illustrate different points of early diagnosis. We obviously back that up with information, risk factors, signs and symptoms, written information. And we also decided the other thing that we would like to do within that is have interviews with specialists. Um, And I think those are the bits that Rebecca and I particularly like doing because those interviews with the specialists give us the opportunity to ask some of those questions that aren't quite articulated in the guidelines. Sort of a bit more of a nuanced on some of the guidelines. When we did the lymphoma module, we were talking about somebody with a lump in the neck, um, a young person with a lump in the neck. I, I work in a very studenty practice in Greater Manchester, and I see lots of young students who have lumps in the neck, lots of people with glandular fever, but I couldn't anywhere find any guidance as to how long after glandular fever you'd become worried about a lump in the neck. And that's the sort of real thing that you're experiencing on a daily basis as GP. So I was able to ask the head and neck consultant, what do you think about this? What would be your rule of thumb? So we've managed to put in those bits of questions that you just 
can't quite find guidance for. Sarah and I have worked together now probably five five-ish years if not more we've known each other for longer but we've worked with Gateway C and we've also built up a lot of connections with with specialists and the good thing with that is we've been able to bridge that gap between primary and secondary care but actually our colleagues and people that we speak to whether it's webinars or courses or students also they can come and speak to the GPs and the GPs can go and speak to them and it's just building up better connections and I, and, and I think in some ways we're improving diagnosis by those small changes because I can ring up and say I've got some abnormal blood results but do you think this needs an urgent referral and, and I know that my colleagues are doing a lot more of that now with the longer waiting lists. Obviously you've got a podcast and it's called GPs Talk Cancer can you explain a bit more about that and what you're aiming to do with the podcast? As part of Gateway C, as Sarah explained, it's an educational platform and we have modules really targeted at CPD. We also have other things as well, things called cancer keys, which are like small little snippets and other ways we would like to educate people. But we realise times are changing and we also realise that that a lot of uh, GPs can't go and sit in conference halls for a whole weekend or um, on a Saturday morning. And the beauty of podcasts is you can do them at any time. And we felt this was just another way to educate. We've just finished series one, which is a different cancer group each week. So we've done one on ovarian, we've done one on pancreatic, we've done one on breast, etc. Series two will be slightly different. This will be looking at, at different angles of, of cancer care and, and we'll be looking at other things as well. There'll also be focus on certain cancer groups, but this, the current series that we've just done now is we look at a couple of cases of a particular cancer and Sarah and I will discuss that and talk about statistics and guidelines and nuances and we sometimes have specialists on as well to discuss that. Coming on to some other issues around cancer, I mean, we know that the pandemic has had a big impact on cancer, in part because people waited, you know, maybe longer to come forward to see a GP than they would have done, uh, and in parts because of delays to care that happened as a result of the pandemic. How has all this impacted on patients and how has it impacted on GPs as well? At the very start of the pandemic, patients weren't coming forward um, and because they were all very much adhering to the, you know, stay at home, protect the NHS. I think we then did an awful lot of work, lots of GPs did, lots of public health people to try and encourage people with concerning symptoms to come forward. The way that we all work as GPs is, and there's lots of other people in primary care as well lots has changed and we're using We've carried on using telephone consultations. We use um, email requests. We're obviously seeing lots of patients face-to-face. It's all changed. But I think we're back now to everybody operating, but there's still the backlogs in the system are probably still there. Everybody's worked incredibly hard to try and address them. But I think people are still waiting a little bit longer for those initial tests and diagnoses you know it is still very difficult to get patients into the system even in primary care quite as quickly as we would like I think one of the things Rebecca and I are always trying to say to anybody is if you've got something that you're concerned about GPs really really do want to see people with suspected symptoms of cancer but we do appreciate it can be quite difficult to do. Rebecca, lots of GPs I speak to, there's real sort of challenges around that sort of interface between primary and secondary care. And you know, there's a lot of concern about systems like advice and guidance, which many GPs feel are 
kind of stopping them um, being able to refer in the way they'd like to. Is that is that so much of a problem with cancer? Because obviously, if you're referring someone on an urgent pathway, it doesn't necessarily go through those kinds of systems, does it? But is there still problems around referrals for cancer? So I think cancer is probably easier than if somebody wants to get their knee replaced. Much better referral pathways. And, and Sarah is very involved with local pathways and trying to improve that. You know, something recent is, is a jaundice pathway that we can actually send a jaundice patient directly uh, down a certain pathway. Um, and, and things like that, they're getting a lot more specialized in some ways. I think, and this is just from a, a personal experience, having worked in my area for quite a long time and having, I suppose, networked in some ways, and, and I also I work hard with my GP colleagues, educating them about early diagnosis and things, we've got quite a good system. If a patient isn't barn door, and I'm not sure what's really happening, so use an example of a patient who I suspect may have a lung cancer diagnosis, but their chest x-ray is normal and they don't have many risk factors, but I still just get that inkling. It might be that I phone a respiratory consultant or a medical registrar and actually say, can I just pick your brains about something? There are advice lines now coming up for certain areas. I use I use hematology as an example, the more so in other areas of general practice in neurology and other things as well, which are not so much cancer-based. But actually, you can say, should this person go on a suspected cancer pathway or should actually they have an urgent appointment or should they have a routine appointment? We have that with the breast team as well. I've got a patient recently who's been seen by the breast team with some nipple abnormality who's not doing well with conventional treatments, had a mammogram, but they kind of focused on a lipoma rather than this particular area. And she's still presenting from July. And I've just written to them to say, I'm just not happy about this. What do you suggest? Do I re-refer her down the two-week wait? Are you going to see her again? It's a work in process. The suspected cancer referrals are dealt with on on Cancer Waiting Times guidance, which has very tight turnarounds. I know there's been quite a lot of publicity and some confusion recently about the removal of recording the two-week wait from GP referral to first appointment. Um, But actually, practically speaking, that shouldn't make any difference to any of our referrals because they still need, they're still very, very heavily um, monitored on how many patients get a yes no to cancer within 28 days and if realistically if you're going to get investigations including you know radiology histology results from within 28 days of GP diagnosis you have to be in touch with them within the first seven to ten days anyway we would be very much encouraging anybody with a patient that they are concerned got cancer to be referring on the suspected cancer pathways and to assume that everything else, you know, that to realise that the patients will get an appointment within seven to 10 days and they should get a yes, no to cancer within 28 days. Um, I think that there are that group of patients and I think it's really difficult for, I mean, I've been a GP for a very long time. Rebecca's been a GP for a little bit less time, but still a long time. I think it is difficult if you've got those patients where you're just not quite sure. Different practices have different systems where you can discuss things among, with your colleagues. I think that different hospitals have different systems. I think that I that ability to be able to bounce ideas, concerns around with an, another colleague is really important. 
Um, I, I don't think everybody will have the ability to contact somebody that they know, but I think every trust really would benefit from having some way of us being able to ask those questions that we don't know the answers to because people don't fit into neat categories um, and things can often be a little bit odd and you just don't quite know. The work you're doing at Gateway C is very much focused around early diagnosis of cancer. And that's a a really big priority for the NHS, particularly in in England, that the NHS is aiming for 75% of cancers to be diagnosed at stage one or two by 2028, which seems like a really ambitious target. So, I mean, there's all sorts of incentives and initiatives going on to try and help that happen. Are we starting to see any positive shift on that, do you think? Do you think people are starting to be diagnosed with cancer earlier than perhaps they were in the past? Yeah, there's definite progress. I've just come off the um, Early Diagnosis Programme Board for Greater Manchester meeting. So we were just looking at some of this data and we were looking at it um, for England, for every locality in England and for different tumour sites. And there is an upward trend in every cancer type. But there is, uh, some of them are over 75% stage one and two already. So breast cancer is over, um, but there's still variation between different areas. Um, some of them are significantly under, like lung cancer. We're still only diagnosing about 40% at stage one and two. But actually things like the targeted lung health checks, which are being rolled out nationally, are making a huge difference because the patients who are diagnosed on that pathway um, There's about 80% being diagnosed at stage one and two. So progress is being made. Um, It's probably not quite as fast as we would like, and it's probably been slightly set back by the pandemic. But there is progress being made. But it needs to be, you know, we need, if we're going to do it, we need to increase uptake of screening. We need to increase um, patients' awareness so that they present with symptoms. And then we need to make sure that, primary care practitioners know when to refer and that there are efficient pathways for them to refer. So there's a a huge amount of work to be done. Um, And we've only got about four years now to do it, haven't we? (laughs) What's exciting about our work, and this is why I feel quite passionate about oncology. And I mean, I, I feel very privileged being a GP because we are the first line of defense in a lot of ways. People come to us. Yes, there are, unfortunately, still about 40% of cancers being picked up in the emergency setting. It might even be even as close to 50%, but I think certain cancer types. But I think as if we can improve the patient coming to us, as in public health messages, so they're actually presenting with symptoms, if we can improve um, opportunistic, as in screening. Um, we've got some great screening programs. I'm a big advocate of screening. So if they come to me with an inf- with an ingrown toenail and I've seen that they've not done their bowel screening, I'll, I'll say to them, I'll actually use that as an opportunity to say why I don't really want to doctor. It's not very nice to do a stool sample and we'll talk to them. And then I'll talk to them how to do it and, and all these other things. So we use those opportunities. But also, I think by educating our colleagues to pick up those symptoms and signs early, and this is another thing that we're doing, we're, we're not only trying to target um, GPs, we're also targeting GP trainees. Uh, we both do undergraduate teaching as well. It's picking up these signs and symptoms early, organizing the relevant investigations and getting them to where they are. And as I say, it's a privileged position to be in when we get it right. 
We know there's kind of inequalities around cancer diagnosis as well. So, for, you know, for example, people in deprived areas are often diagnosed at a later stage. I mean, some of that is obviously clearly to do with the social determinants of health. But is there anything that GPs or practices could be aware of in their consultations in the way they organise things that could go some way to addressing the health inequalities around this? We've both done quite a bit of work on health inequalities and barriers to uh, accessing whether it's appointments, whether it's investigations, turning up for CTs, etc. So you mentioned about social determinants. There's the health inequalities when it's to do with deprivation, and that will also be making sure that the information can be understood and and things like trying to make appointments at a better time. So it's no point just having the cervical screening in the middle of the day when people are working or they've got to be taking um children to school and things you know in an ideal world we need to be doing earlier and later appointments we've also done work about making sure that they're easy to understand um, as far as leaflets text messages all that kind of information and I actually work hard with my front of house as a receptionist because if they're a barrier somebody rings up and they're made to feel embarrassed they won't ring back again but I also work the other way as well and, and I actually stick up for receptionists if people are aggressive or unfair to them I'll also speak on their behalf the other areas that we've looked at is in learning and physical disabilities as well. There's a lot of work going on there. I interviewed a patient recently, a real spokesman and advocate for disabled people. And she talked about having to get three buses to the hospital. And if the first bus arrives and and there's one area for a wheelchair space and that's used, you have to wait for the next one. And so if she then turns up and she's missed her appointment, then it's, it's kind of, we have to make uh, amends for this. We have to make sure that the doors are wide enough. We have to make sure that there's enough time to actually go up onto the examination table. All these kind of things. I think there's a huge amount of work that needs to be done with learning disabilities. Again, making sure that there's no assumptions made, making sure that the right information is given, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So these are just some examples. And you know, I could talk about this area for a whole podcast. Whenever we speak to one of the specialists, we come away with um, something that we, I think really that this is something that will make a difference to the way I do things and then want to share. So when we spoke to Pete Woolworth from Mummy's Star Charity about cancer in pregnancy and in the year after pregnancy, because he said that women who are pregnant often get very delayed diagnoses because everybody assumes that everything is due to their pregnancy. And he was saying that actually one of the things you should do is just view the symptom in isolation from the pregnancy which is a really simple thing to do so if somebody's got a cough or they've got a breast lump or whatever you don't say well that's probably because you're pregnant you think actually if you weren't pregnant what would I do about it because there's quite a lot of cancer data showing that younger patients have a longer route to diagnosis we spoke to a GP who has a big um, interest in treating homeless patients who was saying that actually there's no point in asking a homeless patient whether or not they can see blood in their stool or blood in the urine because the lights that they use in public toilets are actually tinted so that you can't actually see blood because it's to try and stop people injecting so these sorts of questions and these sorts of things are things that you become aware of because you're able to quiz specialists that you might not otherwise be aware of and which actually just are small things that might make a difference to the way you treat different groups of people you know there's huge numbers of inequalities all the way through all the cancer pathways they're all very different 
you talked a bit about screening um, there, and obviously screening is really important if we're going to boost early diagnosis of cancer. So the NHS is currently trialling this blood test. It's called the gallery blood test, which can detect more than 50 types of cancer. I mean, do you think developments like this are a good thing? I think that any development that has the potential to improve early diagnosis is a good thing. Greater Manchester has been one of the pilot sites. I've not been massively involved in the way it works, but actually oh, right, okay. the results aren't available yet. But most of us would say, if you could have a blood test that would diagnose a cancer early at a more treatable stage at a stage where treatment might be a little bit less invasive you probably take it because it's a fairly non-invasive investigation Um, so I think it's a great thing it's obviously very much research-based at the moment but I think there have been some promising results and it'd be really interesting to see the full results when they're available. Is there not any concern though about potentially, you know, picking up cancers that people might never have known that they would have had? Maybe people might end up having to have invasive treatments. They might well have um, died before they'd even known they'd had cancer, particularly if they're older. To be honest, this, this is something about overdiagnosing. It's the same with picking up an abnormal PSA um, and actually taking them down a whole route. Well, actually, they say that 80% of 80-year-olds at autopsy will have some sort of prostate cancer, but they won't have died from that. So it's almost if you're picking up all these things, it might not affect them. What's that going to do from a physical and a psychological point of view? And it's a bit like when we talk about full, you know, full body CTs. People say to me, "Do you think I should pay privately to have an annual, um, and you'll find like a small cyst on your liver or something in your head?" And you know, it's what do we do with those? Uh, and it's this—it's it, difficult, and it's these incidental findings. But I agree with Sarah. I think this blood test that that may pick up that you're at increased. Uh, likelihood of, of cancer now or in the future can only really be a good thing because it might almost that you take a step back and think about your lifestyle, think about preventative features. You might look into your family history more. You might actually attend those screening programs that you wouldn't have done before, all these kind of things. So I think it will only be a good thing. The other worrying thing about a test like that is that obviously no test is 100% effective and you do, and no screening test is. Um, and you do want to make sure you get the message out to patients that if they have a normal test but they still have symptoms, they still need to come and see us. And that's one of the things that worries me about quite a lot of different things is that people get, you know, I saw somebody last week who said, got a lump in my chest but I know it's not cancer because I had normal blood tests the other week uh you know it doesn't quite work so I think that you know false reassurance is is another big issue but we just need to make sure we address it you were mentioning before we started recording, Sarah, about fit tests, and I wanted to ask you about that. You said that you know quite a lot about fit tests. Obviously, that's like that's been a big change in guidance that's happened in the last year. That now GPs are being asked to do fit tests on patients before they, um, if they suspect they might have colorectal cancer, before they um, refer them. I mean, why is that a good thing? Why is that a good change? Do you think? I think that the fit test is a great tool for primary care because you can do it fairly quickly and easily in the majority of patients. Most people, if you see them, um, will do a fit test if asked to. And the old guidance for lower GI cancers was really quite complicated. You know, you had to refer if they were over 40 and had this and under 60 and had this and this and various other things. Now, actually, if you've got somebody with concerning symptoms, if they've got changing bowel habit, they've got abdominal pain, 
bleeding, you can do a fit test, which obviously, like every test, isn't 100% effective, but gives you a pretty good indication as to whether or not you should do something. And particularly in a young patient, you know, if you've got a 35-year-old who has had altered bowel habit for six weeks um, and has maybe lost some weight, actually, you can then do a fit test in them and it gives you a good idea as to how concerned you should then be. So I think it, it gives... GPs and other primary care health professionals are just another tool to try and work out what's going on. Um, and the difference between, you know, referring somebody with the idea that they're then going to have a colonoscopy, which is something that we really probably don't want, or doing the fit test, because it's coming quite quickly. Um, I think there's quite a lot of angst, understandably, amongst people who don't spend as long time think, much time thinking about it as Rebecca and I do, about exactly when you should do it, what you should do with the results, what you do if it's negative, all of these things. But there is a lot of guidance out there now. And I, and I actually just think that from my point of view, because I've spent such a long time thinking about it, it makes it a bit easier because I don't have to think, oh, are they bad enough to need a two-week weight referral? No, I'll just do this. Because the other thing that guidance does really stress as well is that even if they have a negative result on that, if you really are worried about them still, you should still refer them. Yeah, totally. Yes. We have patients come in saying, um, I've got some altered bowel habit or something, but I know it's not cancer because I had a bowel screening recently. Um, just explain the difference almost between diagnostic and screening. This is quite interesting. Basically, if you do a screening fit, they are looking at a level of greater hundred greater than 120 before you have a positive fit. Um, and so you get further investigation if your level's greater than 120. The fit for symptomatic patients is exactly the same test, but the cutoff is 10. Um, so you get investigated if you've got a level above 10. So if you've had a negative screening, you know, you could have a level of 90 and it will say you're negative, but on the symptomatic pathway, you would definitely be referred to be investigated. So I think it's really important for professionals and patients just to realise it's it's different. You can't take a, a negative screening as a negative test if somebody's got symptoms. And this is the kind of information we're trying to get across. That's really important. Things like if you've had the HPV vaccine, you still need to attend your cervical screening. People may not know that. Things like, I use the example, 25% of chest x-rays can be normal, but they can have an early lung cancer that doesn't pick up. I think most GPs would be, oh, it's fine. Your chest x-ray is okay. But instead of actually saying, listen, we'll safety net you, come back in a couple of weeks, your chest x-ray is okay. But if you've still got symptoms in two weeks, I want to see you and then refer you for a CT. These are just small little things that we are trying to, to almost do that next level of care, which I think is really important. We talked a little bit very briefly about the change in the cancer targets. I mean, there was a bit of an outcry in the papers about that, wasn't it, about the, the end of the two-week wait thing? But it's just kind of a change in the emphasis of the targets, isn't it? I mean, do you think the actual national targets change is a, is a positive thing and why? From a practical point of view for patients and for primary care, it doesn't really make any difference um, because I think that it allows a little bit more um, streamlining of pathways. So if actually the best thing to do is to get your patient in on day 15, they can see somebody and they can have two investigations and they can get an answer at the end of the day. That's better than having a token appointment on day 10 just to 
to tick the box, basically. I think the important thing is the faster diagnosis standard, which is the yes, no to cancer by day 28, because actually when the first appointment occurs, it's less important than when you actually get the answer. And I think that's the important thing. So I think that I think that some of it was a little bit misrepresented because actually the important bit is still there. And if it makes it a little bit logistically easier just to see a patient, you know, you might see them on day 10 and do something. You might see them on day 15 and do two or three things. It makes everything a little bit more flexible, but you still have that end point of by day 28 from referral. Trusts are being absolutely monitored on how many patients have got a yes, no to cancer. And then the other thing is that they are also very closely monitored on how many patients are treated by day 62. If you're going to treat a patient by day 62, which to me sounds like a very long time if you've got a cancer diagnosis, but actually if you don't get a diagnosis quickly, you're never going to be able to treat by day 62. Um, So all of these things are still being monitored. We deal with a lot of disgruntled, frustrated patients at the moment. And that's a lot of general practice. And um, it's it makes our job a lot harder because the patients are struggling with, with waiting times. And, um, and that's across the board, not just in, with cancer diagnoses. So it's just important that we almost... There's different ways that we we can help them. It's almost checking in regularly, making sure that any symptoms are as best under control as possible, giving them the information that they need. And almost when they go to their appointment, having as many of the primary care investigations done, so then the diagnosis happens a lot quicker. So I I suppose it's just almost just, it's just the the patient set at the moment. I personally am am struggling because they're, they're frustrated with lag and with secondary care. It's out of our hands. Can I just share my most important GP anecdote? A few years ago, I spoke to a young patient with bowel cancer who has since died. And she went to see her GP with some bleeding um, and was told to come back if it got worse. Um, She said that actually, you know, she was a very law-abiding, compliant person. It didn't get worse over the subsequent year, 18 months, but it actually didn't get better. Um, and by the time she went back, she had a stage four bowel cancer and has died. And one of the things that Rebecca and I are always talking about, and we've related this anecdote lots of times, is actually the key difference would have been if the GP had said, come back if it doesn't get better, rather than come back if it gets worse, could have saved that woman's life. We owe it to our patients just to be really clear in exactly what we mean when we're talking to them, because actually... They do, some of them, you know, a lot of them do take on board exactly what we've said and we need to be really clear on exactly what we're saying to them. I mean, language is so important and I take that anecdote all the time um, and I use that in my everyday language to patients. Um, The other thing I'd say to my GP colleagues is about um, the medical notes, not only we, we expect medical notes to be of certain standard, but when we code in EMIS, which is our which majority of um, surgeries use EMIS for medical records, um, again we saw, we saw and spoke to a patient who had a, a lump, um, and it was it was over remote consulting because it was during the pandemic, and it was coded as a sebaceous cyst, and it just continued, and he must have spoken to 
four or five different GPs um, and healthcare professionals in primary care, and they kept just coding sebaceous cysts, sebaceous cysts, sebaceous cysts, rather than, and I say, we, we often say this, go back again to the beginning and say, can I just take this history again? You may, and because you may not agree with that first code of sebaceous cyst, and he ended up having a sarcoma. And it, and it was almost just, I think too many people had gone down that tunnel of sebaceous cyst, so wasn't looking elsewhere. So again, that's just another learning point. They're really good um, examples, actually, aren't they, to to keep people thinking about it. Before we finish, is that the, like the key thing you would say to GPs, you know, just to keep cancer in, in your mind when it comes to some of these kind of consultations? It's the one we don't like to miss. Yeah. Whenever we're doing um, a consultation, I've got, it's almost, I've got all these kind of differential diagnoses going on in my head. And, you know, we see, we see so much in general practice and the majority of things aren't cancer, but it's almost you're ticking it off as you go along. And it's important that uh, cancer is thought of for all, for all uh, consultations. But thank you. This has been really, it's really great to talk to you both. Thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Really enjoyed it. Thank you. Well, that's it for this week. Thanks so much for listening. And thanks to Sarah and Rebecca for taking the time to talk to me. If you've enjoyed the podcast, you can subscribe to Talking General Practice on all the usual platforms. And please do think about giving us a rating or a review. I'll be back next week with our deputy editor, Nick Bostock, for our fortnightly news review. So please do join me then. In the meantime, you can keep up to date with all the news affecting general practice and access a host of other resources on our website at gponline.com.